Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Excuse me. If we were to give this introduction to the prophecy of Jonah an appropriate subtitle, it would be Jonah, the account of the unwilling prophet. Now concerning the name Jonah itself, from the Hebrew word for dove, one commentator interestingly compared this prophet to the dove of Genesis chapter 8 verses 8 and 9, where the bird in vain sought rest after flying from Noah and the ark. We're told in verses 8 and 9 of Genesis 8, also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot. And she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. And then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. Well, I don't want to characterize that as a stretch, but it's a fascinating take on the prophet that truly found no rest in his calling and mission given to him directly from the Lord. At the same time, Jonah, who we'll call Jonah the Dove, Jonah the Dove's ministry to Nineveh was certainly spirit-led and anointed, resulting in one of the greatest spiritual revivals in history. And so the dove may, in fact, then refer to the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of a reluctant prophet. And then take into account that the prophet's home was in Gath-Hefer, as we'll see in just a moment. Gath-Hefer was not far from Nazareth, the well-known Galilean town where the Lord Jesus in later years would, would spend the greater part of his life a prophet of God in a hostile land. What makes it hostile for uh, for Jonah is the very fact that he is actually from the northern kingdom of Israel. Now remember that we've been studying the prophets, the minor prophets in particular, and most of their ministry up to this point has been against, or toward, I should say, toward the northern kingdom of Israel which was, in fact, a wicked nation. It began wickedly. It began with the intention of not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob any longer in the proper way, but, in fact, in going and and worshiping the golden calves that were erected in Bethel and in Dan in that land. And much of what we said about the people of Israel of the northern kingdom of Israel was that uh, they were far from the Lord. 
What Jonah shows us is that not all of them were gone. Not all of them had gone far from the Lord. So God raises up a prophet from the north in a place called Hath or Gath Hefer, and again, not far from, uh, from Nazareth. And it kind of brings to mind a statement that was made by Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 24, when he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now that's an interesting thought, because if indeed Jonah was prophesying to the nation of Israel, they certainly would not have accepted his message. They certainly didn't accept the message of Amos or Amos or of Hosea, who were both contemporaries of Jonah. And then in John chapter 4, verse 44, Jesus himself testified, John says, that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. And again, I mentioned that if he was in fact prophesying toward and against the northern kingdom of Israel, he would not have been honored. But here's the thing. He wasn't prophesying directly to Israel. He was prophesying. In fact, he wasn't prophesying at all. He was sent as a missionary by God to a heathen country, to a heathen land from the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, when I say he's not prophesying directly to them, he wasn't in the streets of Dan or Bethel or Nazareth or any other uh, town of that, play, of, of that uh, region. But why is this letter important to Israel? Because it is about them. We'll see that in just a moment. I'll get back to that in a moment. But consider, if you will, that Jonah is the only prophet to whom the Lord directly likened himself. And again, think about that. Jonah is the only prophet to whom the Lord Jesus directly likened himself. And it brings up a very significant theological point. The Lord Jesus believed that Jonah was indeed a literal person. And that Jonah's experience in the belly of the great fish was authentic history. For Jesus referred to the incident as an illustration of his own death, of his own burial, and of his own resurrection. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. They always demanded signs from Jesus. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given it, or given to it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, or Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And behold... A greater than Jonas is here. And as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so was the Son of Man a sign to his generation. 
Let's consider the, uh, uh, another uh, account, which is Luke's account in chapter 11 of Luke 29. Verses 29 through 32. And when the people were gathered thick together. That means there was a whole bunch of people gathered to listen to Jesus. He began to say, this is an evil generation. They seek a sign. And there shall no sign be given it but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was a sign unto the Ninevites. Notice that. A sign unto the Ninevites so shall also the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation, speaking of Sheba Sheba or, or Shiva, and condemn them. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Now, for the Lord to refer to Jonah in the same context as the Queen of Sheba and Solomon places the prophet on the same level of validity and authenticity. And coming from Jesus himself, listen, you would think that this would silence the seminarian textual critics who in many cases side with the unbelievers who consider the account of Jonah to be fictional, though possibly an allegory or parable as they teach nowadays in seminaries. But the fact is that the Hebrew scriptures also indicate that Jonah was a real person. I mean, it's enough that Jesus tells us he's real, but that's okay. The Old Testament tells us he's real as well. 2 Kings chapter 14. For here in 2 Kings 14 verses 23 through 25, it tells us when he was, or at least when he was prophesying or when he was called into the ministry and the way he served and and how he served in the northern kingdom. It says in verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned 40 and one years. That is the northern kingdom, to reign in Samaria. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as did all the kings of the northern kingdom. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the, from the entering of Hamat, Unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath Hefer. So here is very clear that Jonah was indeed a prophet. The reign of Jeroboam II was, was a time of great prosperity in Israel. The nation regained lost territory and expanded both its boundaries and influence. But it was also a time of moral and and spiritual decay, or I'm sorry, decay as decline as the nation rapidly moved away from the Lord God into gross idolatry. The courageous contemporaries of the prophet Jonah, Hosea and Amos, both denounced the wickedness of Israel's rulers, their priests and their people. 
And it's worth noting that these prophets also showed the Lord's concern for other nations, which happens to be one of the major themes of Jonah. And while Jonah had a ministry to Nineveh, one of the leading cities in Assyria, he also had a ministry to his own nation Israel. He realized and learned of God's compassion for those outside of Israel, even though they were their enemies. The Lord had called his people Israel to be a blessing to the Gentiles. As we see in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now much of that particular prophecy points eventually to the blessing that comes out of Israel through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of Israel, as it were. Born of the seed of David. Born from the line of David. But it is something that we ought to consider even today when thinking about where we stand prophetically and what we see happening prophetically in the world just in these first eight days of this new year and what's been happening in Iraq where our, where our troops are being fired upon by Persia. We call it Iran today. But they are Persia. And in fact, that's what they call themselves. That's how they want to be known. But that's a good thing too, because that at least lets us know that the scriptures are true. For indeed, what we studied not long ago, I say not long ago, it's about two years now. But what we studied in Ezekiel, when we were going through Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, and the the Gog-Magog war that is yet to happen still is, is now finding its, its place. It's finding its characters, its actors, as they call them today. They're, 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 they're being put into place. And I will bless them that bless thee. Iran's hatred is not toward the United States of America alone. Their hatred really begins with Israel. It just so happens that we are their biggest backers. We are Israel's biggest blessing today. So there is a blessing to those who will bless his people and a curse for those who will curse 
them. And that curse goes on every day, and especially on Fridays, when they gather before the imams and their ayatollahs, and they are encouraged to say, death to Israel, death to America. But the Lord knows, doesn't he? The Lord knows. And the Lord cares. He cares for his people still. I'd like to bring you to some unique distinctions in the book of Jonah. Let me first read verses 1 and 2 again. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Now, that great city, that phrase there, we'll talk about it when we start to uh, dissect this passage next time. But that great city uh, does not only mean that it was an outstanding city like uh, New York City is a great city because of its size, even though it was the biggest city of Assyria at that time. It is reported that it took three days to walk through the city of Nineveh. Three days to walk through a city. That's a pretty big city. But it also was great in something else. It was great in its sin. And this is one reason why God was sending the prophet Jonah to Nineveh. And he says, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it. And here's the reason. So you see it in context. For, that, for their wickedness has come up before me. In a sense, what he's saying is their wickedness has come up before me like a stench. The 12th to early 13th century French Jewish scholar and grammarian... His name was Rabbi David Kimchi. Considered it strange that the book of Jonah was was actually among the Hebrew scriptures. He he thought it strange. For he pointed out that, that the only prophecy in it concerned Nineveh. A heathen city. And makes no mention of Israel. Which is referred by every other prophet or referred to by every other prophet. But the reason for that is, first of all, that the book was intended to be an unspoken or silent rebuke and admonition of Israel. Remember I said earlier that uh, this was not a direct prophecy toward Israel, but an indirect prophecy toward Israel. It was intended to be an unspoken or silent rebuke and admonition of Israel. Consider consider this, that a heathen pagan people were ready to repent at the first preaching of this prophet who was a stranger to them. But Israel, who boasted of being God's elect, repented not, though warned by their own prophets in every season. 
summer, spring, winter, fall, they were being prophesied against and they did not repent. But here comes one singular prophet who, by the way, doesn't even want to be there. This prophet was a, he, he, he was, if, if we can use modern terms today, he was a patriot for Israel. And this was their greatest enemy. And you want me to go tell them that if they don't repent, you'll wipe them out? Just pass the first step and just wipe them out. But that's not what God sent him to do. You see, the prophet's ministry to Nineveh was an anticipatory or preemptive streak of light before the dawn of the full light would be revealed. You know when it was revealed? It was revealed at the dedication of a baby. The dedication of Yeshua at the temple by a man named Simeon. And they brought the child and Simeon took this child. We're told in Luke 2.28 that he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And he said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. What a statement to say that Jesus, when he came, he did not only come for his people Israel, but he came for all nations. A light to lighten the Gentiles. That would be the dawn of the full light. Another quite significant point to make here is that the prophecy of light at the coming of Messiah in the book of Isaiah was directed to the very same areas and tribe from which Jonah came. As we read in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, not too many weeks ago, around Christmas time, where it says in verses 1 and 2, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lighted he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun. Zebulun, that is that area where Nazareth is and Gath Hefer, and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. Now that's an interesting statement. Galilee of the nations. We could talk a long time about that, but suffice to say, that there was a road that would lead to the east through the Galilee region. And they would come from the east and they would go to the east 
in this, in this area. And then, of course, later on, there would be the Decapolis areas of ten regions, then the Romans, and Tiberia would be called after Tiberius, the emperor, and so on and so forth. So it, 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 was, it was a place to signify the nations, all in this Galilee region, Notice in verse 2 it says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shine. And just a few, few verses later, what do we read? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, or the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. The light, you see, would come to that region. Secondly, Rabbi Kimchi also pointed out that Jonah himself was a strange paradox, a curious enigma. A contradiction, if you will. Because he was a prophet of God and yet a runaway from God. That's quite a contradiction. And these were only his questions as to why would this book be in this Bible or in the scriptures, in the, in the Hebrew scriptures. But that's not all that he considered. He, he considered the fact that here, here's a man that drowned and yet was alive. Now we'll talk about that more in the next couple of weeks. He was a preacher of repentance. Yet he was one that expressed dejection and discontent at repentance. The last thing he wanted to hear were the people of Nineveh repenting unto his God. Remember, he would just much rather the Lord took care of things instantly and, you know, bring me back to my hometown. But consider this. That Jonah, who was saved from the jaws of death himself, on the basis of his own repentance, was the fittest to give a hope to Nineveh, doomed though it was. Because let's face it, we know that they repented at this time. If you've read the book of Jonah, hey, listen, I forget what they call it. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, you know, spoiler alert, that's what it is. This is not a spoiler alert. You should already know, you know, that Nineveh was going to... <laughs> be saved here, you know, at least for a time being. If you know history and you know the Bible, you're going to know that much later on, of course, they would fall again. But nonetheless, God, for that moment in time, for that moment in history, God had used this prophet To bring a merciful reprieve upon Nineveh and their repentance was the basis of it. 
The patience and the pity of the Lord stand in striking contrast with the selfishness and hard-heartedness of man, especially in God's own people. Nineveh was, was chosen by God to teach Israel these lessons. And again, that's why I say that Jonah's ministry was an indirect prophecy to his nation. Nineveh was chosen by God to teach Israel these lessons. And one reason is that it was the capital of the then known world. And because it was now beginning to make its power felt by Israel. Now when, when the, the nation of Israel early on was, was, was being established in its prosperity. And they were actually... You know, yeah, they were thanking God to some extent, but they weren't thanking the right God. And in, much, in many of the cases, they were thanking themselves. Because what can you do when you worship idols, but consider that those idols in some way, shape, or form have given you some credence as to your own power and to your own might and to your own bringing about things. So... By this time, Israel's not so prosperous. And so, Assyria was rising and testing out their alliances, testing out Israel's uh, allies. Testing to see, uh, do you kind of get an idea of that that's some of the things that are happening in the world today with places like North Korea and Iran or Iraq, Afghanistan? You know, you can kind of uh, take a pick, you know, at, at some of these things. You know, we, we know where some of these people stand. We know where some of these governments stand. But, you know, there's trade agreements with China and whatnot and tariffs and all kinds of uh, uh, things going on uh, politically and financially and uh, you know it's 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 complicated but it's not but then back in in, in Jonah's time it wasn't so complicated a nation as strong as Assyria could just rise up and say we're coming and taking over and in many cases that's what they did to other people and eventually to Israel, to Israel itself, the northern kingdom. They would try the southern kingdom, but God would protect the southern kingdom for a time. Later on, the southern kingdom did exactly what the northern kingdom did in that they began to worship more and more of the idols and, and they wouldn't repent of that. And so God you know, put them under the Babylonian rule. But here it was that uh, was now beginning to make its power felt, that is, Assyria, uh, upon Israel. So Jesus made Nineveh's repentance a rebuke of the Jewish impenitence in his day. Let me clarify what I'm saying. Jesus made Nineveh's repentance a rebuke of the Jews' non-repentance in his day when he said this in Matthew 12, verse 41. 
Now, I'm just repeating what I've read earlier. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. So he would use that repentance. Again, to show the lack of repentance in his own people. Think about the, the phrase that John makes in, in uh, the statement that John makes in his gospel, chapter 1, uh, verse 11. Speaking of the word, or the logos, which is Jesus, he said, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. When Jesus started preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he was preaching that to the Jewish people. He came to the Jewish people. He came unto his own. And if you, we could use the, the first 10 chapters of Matthew to understand what was going on there. But by the 12th chapter of Matthew, when, when the spiritual leadership of Israel rejects Jesus, completely rejects it, where does he turn? He turns then. Beyond that statement when he says, I came unto the children of Israel. Now he will turn his attention. Not that he failed. He already knew. He knew they wouldn't repent. But it would open that door for the Lord to preach the gospel of salvation to Jew and Gentile. And then Jonah would then provoke Israel by jealousy by the very same example. As stated in one verse in Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21. Again, this is, a, this is a prophetic verse, but it says, They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities. Speaking of his own people. And I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So when you think about the disgust that Jonah had when the people of Nineveh repented before God. Jonah should have rejoiced. But what do we know? No spoiler alerts here. What do we know? He was disgusted. With God saving them. You almost just want to laugh. That's why I think the you know this book of Jonah is going to be really an exciting one to study because you know it just sometimes just turns into a picture of us. We may not want to admit it, but sometimes the Lord does something to somebody we don't like and we just like God, why him? Why them? Why her? As if he's got to come and ask us permission. And we forget. 
that we all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. That includes you and me. And God provoked them to anger with a foolish nation. But the one that turned out to be a little more foolish than the nation was the prophet himself. With all this said, we can come to the conclusion that that this account and biography, or autobiography as the case may be, because Many people don't believe that Jonah wrote this himself, though many others do, and I would be one to believe that he did, but that's my own personal preference with all that I've read and seen in the text itself. But I'll talk about that more next week. But we can come to the conclusion that this account was written for the people of Israel and the people of Judah for all the reasons previously mentioned, as well to all people of every nation and of every generation, not to mention to give us who believe an example and warning for us. The book of Jonah is a good book for us to read, to study, for an example to us. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 for just a moment. Well, it's going to be a long moment because i got 11 verses to read to you. But in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 through 11, Paul said this. He said, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud being, of course, the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night that led the children of Israel through the wilderness experience. The sea, of course, would be the sea through which they passed to enter into the wilderness itself. And Paul characterizes it as a baptism when you consider what they passed through. Baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, in that terminology, we also realize that they were baptized into the law. Baptized into the law. Because Moses uh, was the one who was given the law. But faith and truth, or grace and truth, I should say, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Who led the children of Israel into the promised land? Someone named Yehoshua. Yehoshua is the same name as Yeshua. Jesus. Which means God is salvation. So it goes on to say we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. This is the reason why 
when we think about that rock that Moses dealt with out in the wilderness, it was done two times. The first time upon the rock, he was to strike it, which was a picture of Jesus being struck on our behalf for our sins. And eventually, of course, being the picture of Jesus on the cross, dying on our behalf as the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. The next time they are in need of water and there is a rock, God tells Moses to speak to the rock. But Moses and his anger over a number of things with the people instead strikes the rock again. Now water comes forth. The water comforts and refreshes the people. But Moses no longer can lead them into the promised land. But that's the whole picture of Moses being a type of the law. The law can only get us so far. It could only bring us to the Jordan River. It would take God's salvation through God's grace and God's mercies to lead the children of Israel, and in this case, to lead all who believe into the promised land. How interesting when you go back and consider that wilderness experience that it was actually the next generation that was brought into the land, except for two of the old generation, Joshua and Caleb. Again, the law can only bring you so far. Grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. So this, these are some of the pictures that we're seeing here that Paul is speaking of. And he says in verse 5, But with many of them God was not well pleased. <laughs> For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples. Now keep a, a, an eye on that word example there. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Remember when Moses goes up into the mountain and waiting on God to give him the, you know, give him the law, waiting on the Lord for whatever he was going to do, and of course he gives him the law. What were the people doing? They were waiting for Moses, and they kept saying, well, Moses isn't coming down. Maybe Moses is dead. Maybe Moses is, uh, you know, just, he's, he's, he's not ever coming down again. Let's, you know, and they, and they, and they get Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, to, uh, you know, to design and craft a, a golden calf. And saying, that's our God. That's, that's the God we're waiting for. So God was not very pleased with them over all of these things. Then he goes on to say in verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication. 
sexual sins as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand that's twenty three thousand people in one day judged for their sin neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents Jesus of course would make reference to that when he said if I be lifted up Considering that situation where the bronze serpent was put on a stick, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a, on a rod and, and lifted up. And if the people turned to it, they would be healed from those particular serpents, bites. That's why Paul says, neither let us tempt Christ. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. And notice what he says here. He says, now all these things happen unto them for ensamples. Do you notice the word ensample there? Now, in most modern translations, you'll see example and example. We read the word example earlier, and then it just comes back as examples. But ensample here is, is, is uh, significant. It's different than an example. I'll, I'll tell you why in a moment. So, now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition. And this is important to understand that word. They are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. The word ensample in the, in the King James English, the word ensample means a pattern or model for imitation that deals with man's character and behavior. In other words, it is specifically an example for a person to follow. Specifically an example for a person to follow that deals with their character and that deals with their behavior. Example, as we read earlier, can apply both to personal issues like that or just general products or processes. An example of, 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 of something in the world that you aren't necessarily needing to see as something to do in your life. In other words, this, this, this is a type or an example. And the word tupos in the Greek is used on both words. Tupos. But the King James translators saw the need to see the difference between anything that was just an example of, of, of a type and something that we are to embrace for ourselves to do that deals with our character. That's why at the end there of, uh, of the statement, now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they were written for our admonition. They were written so that we would change if our, our lives needed to be changed and, and, and upon whom the ends of the, of the world would come. So just a quick lesson on, on the word that is used there, which isn't clear in, the, in, in modern English, but it's clear in, 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 the, uh, in the King James English. John was also given to us to teach us how to live and to give us hope. I should say Jonah. Jonah was also given to us to teach us how to live and to give us hope. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Every book of the Old Testament, every book of the Hebrew Scriptures is for our learning. There's something spiritual, something biblical that we need to embrace in every book of the Old Testament. That we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. So there is a lot of hope 
whether anybody wants to believe it or not. There's a lot of hope in the Old Testament for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Besides, that was his word to his people. That is his word to us. We do not have only a New Testament. We have the whole of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, 66 books written by 40 authors, at least 40 authors. All of it connected from beginning to end by the one who created us and made us into the image of Christ and is making us more and more into that image each and every day as believers. So let us also remember in review that Jonah was written and it was preserved for the children of Israel to remind them of their duty to bear witness for the Lord. They had long forsaken their call to be a light to the nations. But God is telling them, this you need to understand. I called you to be a light to the Gentiles. Second, it was to remind them of God's great love for all people, even their enemies. Now, folks, I know uh, the people of Israel today, of modern Israel, they're not perfect. They're not perfect by a long shot. There there are groups of people there that that are Messianic Jews. They believe in Jesus. They believe in Yeshua as as their Messiah, as their Lord and Savior. It's a very small percentage. And then there are religious Jews that that they love the word, they love the Torah, they love God. And and for the most part are are very very moral people and and good people and they're biblical in, in, in what they know to be biblical. And then there's a, a whole lot of very secular Jewish people that are Jews by race and by blood, but you don't know. They are not really religious as they, they would say of themselves. So what, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying here is there's still something ingrained in them as Jews, as Jewish people. We hear from time to time that Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. It is the only true democracy in the Middle East. And most of the other nations that surround Israel have a a, a very hateful and belligerent attitude toward them. There's some friendly uh, but cautious uh, types of relationships with the Egyptians and, and the Jordanians. Uh, maybe a few others, but not, not very many others. But one thing that you learn when you go to Israel, especially if you have anything to do with the hospitals there and the medical uh, uh, people, is that they never turn away anyone from medical care, whether Jew or Arab or Islamic or Christian. They never turn them away. And I truly believe that that comes from what they have been ingrained in as Jewish people from the very beginning. That this is what God has always called them to do and to be. So 
keep that thought in mind. The book of Jonah reminds us of God's great love for all people, even enemies. It should be noted and even shocking to think that Jonah was called to go to Nineveh in Assyria since they were known for being some of the cruelest people in the ancient world. They were infamous for their brutality, oppression, and malicious treatment of other nations. In a word, they were perhaps feared more than any other people in Jonah's day. But because of God's incredible mercy and his great love for mankind, the Lord sought to offer even the barbaric Assyrians an opportunity to repent. I thought of Peter's statement in 2 Peter 3 verse 9 where he said, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is how great the love of God is. It is greater than we could ever understand. It is greater than anything we could ever imagine. Oh, we could try to imagine great love, but we would always fall short if we place the expressions of love before the expression of the love of God toward all of his creation. I think it should heighten for us the understanding then of that great scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him, whosoever, that word means whosoever, whether Jew or Gentile, because when it comes right down to it, that's all there is on the earth. But to, as, to whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what should our response, our response be then to this, to this letter of Jonah or this prophecy of Jonah or this missionary evangelistic call of Jonah? How should we respond? It certainly isn't to be like Jonah's response. <laughs> Lord, uh, the Lord speaks to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to tell them to repent. And Jonah says, okay, and then he goes the other way. That was his response. We are not to run from the will of God. We are to conform to the will of God. That's a general lesson of this book. We are not to run, run from the will of God. We are to conform to the will of God. And then to surrender to his call upon our lives, no matter how difficult that call may be. To that end, we are to desire mercy for others and not judgment. We are to... 
desire mercy for others. I leave you with Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And I thought of, of, of one other one that I'll close with, but it's not going to be behind me. But it was simply a statement made by the prophet Habakkuk. Who, uh, who said in Habakkuk 3, verse, verse 2, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive the work, thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of, your, of the years make known. And he said, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. God desires mercy, not judgment. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus said, for they shall obtain mercy. And so, our introduction to the book of Jonah. And we'll get back to verses 1 through 3 next, next time and a little bit further into it. Since we all pretty much know now, no spoiler alerts, we know kind of what's going to happen, but how it's going to be put together, how we understand the various things that God said to him, the various things that Jonah did on the ship that he was on. Uh, there's there's a, a lot of pictures there that we want to look at next time.